Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, folks, so this week Paul is taking us to Central America and pre-Columbian times and I'm already lost. So over to you, mate. All right, we're talking about one of the most sophisticated, highly developed civilizations in the pre-Columbian Americas. We're talking about an area of Guatemala, Belize, bits of Honduras, El Salvador, the lowlands of the Yucatan Peninsula, even the highlands of Sierra Madre in Mexico, because we're talking about the Maya who, of course, are most famous in people's minds because of that fantastic architecture with the pyramids. Now, mate, before we get started, okay, is it Maya or Mayan? Good question, actually, Mikey, because Maya is not actually the word they use for themselves. It's a modern term that's sort of been imposed, if you like. But most historians today, they prefer to call it the Maya culture. And it was a culture that had been going on for 1,000, 2,000 years. But interestingly, it wasn't really an empire like your Aztecs or your Incas. It was more a collection of city-states and chieftains. You know, they had a common ethnicity, a common culture, um, and each different kingdom or chieftain was dominated by this divine king, divine chief, and then they had these small political and religious elites looking after the masses. But as more and more archaeological evidence is being dug up, it seems to be coming quite clear that these individual Maya cities were as often political rivals to one another as friendly blood brother neighbours. Gotcha. Yeah, and as I said at the top of the show, primary amongst this archaeological evidence, and the reason why I'm so interested in the Mikey is because they left these amazing pyramid temples. Now, they're up to 250 foot tall, and they're layered a bit like the early Egyptian pyramids. You know, oh, in, the, the uh, step pyramids. In steps rather than the flat faces, that's right. But the exteriors were painted, they were decorated with different imagery, they had sculptures, they had stucco reliefs. So, mate, you've already mentioned Mexico and the Aztecs. So were the Mayans a precursor to that civilization? Well, you see, that's the interesting thing, Mikey, because really that's just a typical European view, you know, our way of thinking, isn't it? One dynasty oh, supplants the next yeah, and you know, one dynastic, yeah. knocks off the world and replaces them. But actually the Mayans and the Aztecs are as different as, say, you know, the, the Persians and the ancient Greeks. All right, so we're going back that far in time. That's right. We're really going back as far as 2000 BC when we get the first clues into the Maya culture. And already by 750 BC, you see the first key cities developing. Now, to be honest, it's not until probably 500 BC that you start to see the big monuments and the big pyramids. But by the 3rd century BC, you've also got the Maya script evolving. Mate, correct me if I'm wrong, because I know it looks like hieroglyphics, but it's not really hieroglyphics. That's right. It's more of a superficial resemblance, to be honest, Mikey, because, and I think the problem there was that because they'd seen the pyramids, a lot of historians saw the writing and just immediately just jumped onto the Egyptian idea of hieroglyphics. Actually, it's much more sophisticated um, than that, and it's probably the most sophisticated writing system in the Americas before the Europeans arrive. And what they do, it's, it's a combination of phonetic signs, which represent syllables, and then logograms, which are like the Egyptian 
um, hieroglyphics, whereby one picture represents an entire word. But unfortunately, Mikey, the Spanish, and particularly the Catholic Church, they tried to destroy almost every text they found when they came across the Mayan. Ah, yes, the Catholic Church desecrating another culture's history yet again. <laughs> That's right, Mikey. And in fact, they almost succeeded because we've only got three really good pre-Columbian Maya texts left in their entire world now. We've got the Madrid Codex, you've got the Dresden Codex, and you've got the Paris Codex. And it was because of them that we were still able to reconstruct the Maya script in the Maya language. Hang on, mate. They're all in Europe. So the ones they didn't destroy, they just stole instead. That's right. And Mikey, it's also worth pointing out here that when these codexes were written in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, they were pretty much on a par with anything that was coming out of medieval Europe at the same time. They've also um, constructed their own ritual calendars based on astrology. And they think now that some of those pyramids were actually used as observatories so they could actually uh, look at the stars and help build those calendars around it. And they also make great strides in mathematics because it seems now that the Maya have one of the earliest known instances of using an explicit zero for their maths. You know, yeah, this is going to surprise you, Paul, because you know how slack I am at maths. But I do know it was like centuries before Western Europe cotton onto that concept, particularly through the French. That's right. And I think it's because of this sophistication that they were so successful, but also very practical. You know, there's a massive expansion in terms of farming and agriculture at this stage. They build an impressive trade network across the whole of Mezzo. America. They're cultivating staples, staple crops like cotton, maize, squashes, even chili peppers and chocolate. Ah, mate, now you're talking. Look, I was kind of hoping when you said you were going to do a show about the Mayans, we might talk about their agriculture because now we're in my wheelhouse. Yes. And mate, next time you're in the fruit and veg aisle of your supermarket, we've got a lot to thank the Maya for. Right. Let's start with everyone's favourite, chocolate. Mm -hmm. Now, cacao is endemic to the lands of the Maya and they've been cultivating it for 3,000 years. 3,000? Wow. Yeah, they were first Take the seeds of the fruit and make it in, into a beverage. Not a sweetened drink as we know, but a, a ceremonial elixir. But they already knew the mood-enhancing properties of chocolate. Ah, right. And they thought it was such a gift from the gods that the same god of chocolate is also the god for merchants and trade. Right. Which makes sense when you think about the cocoa beans were often used as a form of currency. Mm. Now, of course, Cortez got it from the Aztecs, but they got it from the Maya. They also used chili, which you mentioned, and vanilla in their chocolates. I mean, you know, fancy chili chocolate like we have nowadays, yeah, like fancy people do today. And while we're talking chili, you've got to remember that yeah, you know, probably the most famous chili, the Tabasco chili, comes from just up the coast, from where the Maya was centred. But they traded all through the area with yes. chili. Also, too, they're the first to cultivate corn. Yeah, you know, the big crop of the Americas, in fact, sweet corn. They were cultivating that in around about twenty five hundred BC. Wow. Now, mate. I know we should be going to a break here now, but I just want to talk about one thing, and one yeah. really important thing, one thing we all love, the avocado. The avo. Yeah, the old avo. Now, up until this present day, people from Antigua, Guatemala, which was part of the old Mayan area, mm -hmm. they're still called Panza Verde or Green Bellies. Oh, because they, they eat so many avocados. <laughs> In fact, it is well recorded the Maya were the first culture to grow and farm the avocado. Mm -hmm. But we don't get the word for avocado from them. No. No, we get it from the Aztecs. Um, okay. It's basically a Spanish misinterpretation of what the Aztecs called the avocado, which was the testicle. Ah. Ah, yeah. Well, yes. well, 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 well think about it, mate. You know, they, yes. Well, they grow in pairs. Yes. And it's no, no, I got it. But it gets a little bit weirder than that. I mean, the Aztec and the Maya were so convinced that they were the testicle tree <laughs> that during harvest season, they used to keep their daughters indoors. <laughs> 
All right, so we're talking about the Maya, and as Mikey said, they've made a massive impact um, on virtually everybody's grocery list over the years, haven't they? Yeah, but mate, oh, Heroes and Howls, and look, I know that the Howls probably going to be Cortez, mm. that's a given, but but who are your heroes? Well, I must admit, I was talking to a friend of mine, a historian friend of mine, and I said, yeah, we're going to do an episode on the Maya, and he asked me, you know, oh, well, what are you going to do for the heroes? Is it going to be the mythical twins, uh, Hunapu and Hobalank? Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I do want to actually talk about these two guys, Mikey, Hunapu and Zebalank, because they are heroes in the Mayan culture, and they are twins. In fact, they're probably the oldest Maya legend, and they're the sort of two complementary forces, a bit like your know, life, death, sky, earth, night, day, that kind of thing. And they, these two twins, they fight against the gods in the underworld, they fight against grandmothers, half-brothers, howler monkeys, and they have a lot of these ball games with their rubber balls. I'm not quite sure if it's football or, or a game of squash, but they end up victorious. They don't just get back up to earth from the underworld, but they keep going up to the heavens and they are the ones who actually in the Maya culture become the sun and the moon in the sky. Mate, great story, but they're not your hero. No, they're not my heroes today, Mikey, because obviously they are legends and I want to stick to historical figures. So today, my hero, Mikey, is a guy called Tekken Uman who was probably born about 1500 and who dies in 1524. 1524, he's 24 years of age and the Spanish are arriving, so I'm guessing it doesn't end well for him, mate. Now, unfortunately, it's quite a short life, um, but he is seen as a real hero. We're not sure whether the name was his actual name or a royal title or whether it was connected to the local volcano of Teyukuman just round the corner, but he dies at the Battle of El Pinar in 1524, and he's the last great ruler of the Quiche people, which is the line of the Mayas who lived in the highlands of Guatemala. So we're in Central America in the 1520s, right, Paul? That's right. And so the Spanish have arrived. You know, they've made their headquarters on Hispaniola. They've also taken Cuba, and they've expanded into the Yucatan Peninsula in what's nowadays Mexico. And in 1522, the guy in charge as you said, the great howler Hernan Cortes. He's now pushing across westwards. He's trying to make it to the Pacific coast. And he's pushing into Guatemala and even into the lowlands of Chiapas, which is that most southerly of southern Mexican states. And it's when he gets here that he comes up against the Quiche tribes and another tribe called the Cachicol, who together are the last two tribes to refuse to surrender. So our howler, Cortez, is he actually leading the charge? <laughs> actually, no, Mikey. At this point, another Spaniard enters the action because Cortez decides to take a break and dispatches a man called Pedro de Alvarado um, as his main man with 180 cavalry, 300 Spanish infantry, and then thousands of the local allies who've already submitted to Spanish rule and come over and said they'll fight alongside their new masters. Well, actually, when you say masters, that was quite a strategy of Cortes. He would often employ pre-existing rivalries to bring various local tribes onto his side. That's it, exactly, Mikey. And the double whammy for the Maya, of course, is that, as we said earlier, the way their culture was set up with rival city-states and rival tribes, it all played nicely into Spanish hands. So... I'm just thinking of terms of armour and the balance of power. It wasn't just the muskets, was it? No, it wasn't just the muskets. In fact, most of the Spanish uh, weapons were still crossbows. But by the same token, Mike, yes, the Spanish, of course, you know, they had muskets. They also actually had four cannons in this campaign. And never underestimate the power of a cannon. <laughs> and yeah, so they're always going to be able to outblast any of their rivals. So the chances of withstanding this assault are pretty slim. For the Kichi and the 
Cat's Chickle trying to hold out? Yeah, I'm afraid so, Mikey. And so it's no surprise it doesn't take long for Alvarado to make it to the Pacific coast. And once he gets there, he starts moving up towards the Samala River. Now, do you want me to get a map out of him, <laughs> Mikey? Uh, mate, I think I know where the Pacific coast is. So, yeah, it's, it's on the west side. All right, OK. So we're in Guatemala. We're pushing up to the Samala River and we're approaching the Quiche heartlands, which is centred around the fertile valley of Quetzaltenango. And that's where they're going to have this battle. Precisely, the Battle of El Pinar. We're now the 12th of February, 1524. Now, Alvarado, he sent his allies, the local allies, up ahead in the vanguard. And suddenly they're ambushed by the Quiche warriors, led by my man, Tukan Uman. And Tukan Uman, they say, is adorned with these precious Quetzal feathers. Now, I don't know if you know what a Quetzal is, Maggie. I'm assuming feathers, it's a bird, right? Yeah, it's a bird. It's a local bird. And it was, you know, it was probably the holiest bird. Some people say that it was like a sort of animal spirit guide for the Maya. <laughs> and there's even, there's even a story that an actual Quetzal was accompanying um, Tekanuman with him as he charged into the fray. And at first it seems to work, Mikey, because the Quiche managed to drive back the local allies of the Spanish. But of course, then Alvarado gets on his horses, he gets the cavalry, and they charge up to the front to take on Tekken Uman face to face. And we've got this amazing scene recounted to us in the Spanish histories, whereby Alvarado and Tekken Uman, they come face to face. Of course, Alvarado, he's mounted on his war horse. Now, hold your horses here, Paul. <laughs> okay. I'm going to assume that Tekken Uman has not seen a horse before. Yeah, well, that's it. We genuinely assume that when we're talking about these pre-Columbian peoples, they haven't seen horses and they don't really know what they're facing when they see these mounted riders. In fact, a lot of the stories say that they thought it was just one beast connected rather than two separate. Sort of like a centaur with two heads. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so Tukan Uman, when he's confronted, he actually attacks the horse rather than the man, thinking that if he can kill the horse, he'll kill everything and it'll all come tumbling down. That sounds like a fatal error. Yeah, unfortunately, because it gave Alvarado time to get his spear and thrust it through his collection of Quetzal feathers and right into his heart. So the Quetzal feathers didn't really stop the spear. Look, I don't mm. like to dismiss others' beliefs, but they weren't much chop. No, they weren't, unfortunately. But as the way the scene's described, that Quetzal bird, the spirit guy, is so full of grief, he lands on the chest of his fallen master and he stains the breast feathers, the red blood which we now see on the male Quetzal. And according to Mayan tradition, it's why we've never heard a male Quetzal bird sing ever since. In fact, if you ever put a Quetzal bird in captivity, Mikey, it dies within days. And it's because of that that the Quetzal bird for the Maya and for many of the Mesoamericans is still seen as a symbol of liberty. Okay, folks, so we've been looking at the 1524 Battle of El Pinar, a battle that in many ways sounded the death knell for the Maya. But as we were saying before, Paulie, it wasn't just the coming of the Spanish that did for this incredible civilization, as indeed it hadn't simply been the rise of the Aztec Empire on the Maya's northern border. That's right, Mikey, because this Quiche tribe under Tecanuman, they are by no means the peak Maya. The Maya have already seen their glory days. As I said at the beginning, it wasn't because they were replaced by the Aztecs. They actually lived far enough away from the Aztec Empire that politically they didn't really overlap. So was it 
more of an internal problem. Well, that's what I think, Mikey, because it's a bit like the ancient Greeks. You know, you've got Athens always fighting Sparta. Ah, yes, fighting yeah, yeah, yeah. Warring states, yeah. Sometimes coexisting, sometimes at each other's throats. Right. And look, it's important to make it clear that life within the Maya world was never some sort of uninterrupted idyll. You know, you, you've got still got mass slavery, human sacrifice. It was a civilization that was always in a state of flux. But back in the 12th century, when they were at their height, they really were the most important, most powerful civilization in the Americas. And as I said at the beginning of the show, they'd been a major force for over a thousand years. But there were fault lines. Precisely. And these would repeatedly come back to haunt them. Because in the 9th century, you know, we're talking about the cities and the city rivalries, there seems to be a massive wave of internecine warfare. And a lot of the old cities are abandoned. And the whole population of the Maya shift northwards. And they have to create a whole new set of strongholds on higher ground, which is easier to defend. But as I said, they did that successfully. And you've got cities like Mayapan in the 12th century, that seems to be a centre of an enormous network. You've got the city of Chichen Itza a bit further north. And then as time goes on, you've got the Kiiche kingdom establishing itself as the number one player in the Guatemalan highlands. And there the tribe will eventually give us your men, Tekanuman. That's right. But it's important to stress, Mikey, by the time the Spanish arrived, the Maya peak has long passed. And I think it's unfair to say that the Maya were destroyed by the Spanish, just as it's unfair to say they were destroyed by the Aztecs. In fact, it might be unfair to say that they were brought down by warfare at all. So what, politics? Disease? Well, it could be disease for sure. But there's also a more modern parallel which I want to explore, and that is the impact of climate change. Because this region, you see, Mikey, yes, it is full of a lot of jungles. It is very wet, but it's particularly summer rain. And there's quite a lot of areas that technically are a desert for nine months of the year. So if one or two seasons go by, one or two years, and they don't get any summer rain, it seems to have brought about an environmental and, of course, economic disaster. In many ways, it might even be that the Maya were too successful in their expansion, Mikey, because as they were clearing the jungle and using up the land, sure, that was great for the first four or five years of planting new crops. But the problem is that once you clear a jungle... The nutrients very, very quickly are eroded and you end up with this very thin soil. So what you're saying is a couple of years of drought can make the whole farming system unsustainable. Yes, and I think that throws up another picture which perhaps historians aren't so keen to paint. And that is that history isn't always dictated by the big events like the coming of the Europeans or the smashing of another dynasty. Sometimes these great powers do just fizzle out through no real fault of their own. That's a good point, mate. But it's not the end of the Maya influence on the world. No. Even beyond groceries. <laughs> That's right, Mikey. Their influence is still massive. You know, for a start, you've got six million people in the highlands of Guatemala and in that Chiapas, southern Mexico state, who descend directly from the Maya in terms of ethnicity. You've also got 28 dialects of the original Mayan language still spoken today amongst these communities. And, you know, that mathematics and calendars I was talking about, the 260-day Maya calendar is still used by the communities today. That's for their indigenous rituals, but alongside the modern-day you know, traditions and institutions. Yes, and if you go to Central America today, Mikey, you'll see it. You'll see it for yourself. In fact, Guatemala 
1960, declared my man, Tekken Uman, the national hero. Well, good on him. Well, yes, it is, Mikey, but it's also a bit ironic because this is the same Guatemalan government that's got the long history of so mistreating its native population. So sadly, finishing off the job the Spanish had started. Mind you, I have to thank you, Paul. I actually do know a lot more about the Maya than I did at the start of the show. I mean, obviously, apart from chocolate and avocado. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Mikey, you've not just got a howler for us, you've got a, a real rogue. A very Scottish rogue. Rogue. <laughs>